This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ayelet Zohar, senior lecturer in the History of Art Department at Tel Aviv University. Dr. Zohar is the author recently of Photography and Invisibility, Indexicality and Performativity, Asia-Pacific War Memory, and Skata Mamoru's Identical Twin Series, 2003, and Suzuki Norio's Photos of Onoda Hiro, 1974, in Volume 25, Issue Number 2 of Positions, East Asia Cultures Critique, in 2017. Dr. Zohar, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Your research has looked at photography in Japan, all the way from contemporary photography back to the Meiji period, looking at issues of identity, representation, war memory, even colonial representation. And so I wanted to talk with you about what's happening with photography, starting with the Meiji period, and how does this set a foundation for what's happening later in Japan? The first thing I would like to emphasize is the two histories of photography as a practice, looking into the history of photography as documentary, which is the more common way of looking at photography as a device, a medium, an apparatus that records the reality, the real, what we see in front of our eyes. But then there is another history which looks into the performative aspect or the stage photography which is designed by the photographer being on display in the studio and then being recorded by the camera according to the photographer's design, staging and um, other elements of intervention that can happen after the picture taking, post-production in terms of cutting or dyeing or doing any other um, significant interventions into the photograph. So keeping these in mind, that will be a very important linking thread between the photography of the 19th century and the photography of the late 20th century, um, what we call post-conceptual or the photography that is very conscious of its own reality-making, and uh, going back with this notion to look into the major photography will give us an extra edge. So simply speaking about the history of the camera or the history of photography in Japan, we have to go back to the 1848 when the first camera was imported to Japan by Ueno Hikoma, one of uh, Japan's most famous photographers. His father, Ueno Toshinojo, imported the camera. He was a business person and he sold this camera to Shimazu Nari Akira, who was the daimyo of the Shimazu clan in uh, Kagoshima. So it took uh, Shimazu and his um, retainers several years, nearly eight years, to be able to produce um, the first single photograph, uh, or to be more precise, the daguerreotype. This was the camera they had at the time, a, a positive camera on silver plates. And this image they created, a portrait of Shimazu himself, is considered to be the very first photograph ever taken in Japan. And um, it had become the sacred item of a small jinja in Kagoshima called Terokuni Jinja. Terokuni Daimyojin is the afterlife name of Shimazu Nari Akira. And so the jinja holds his uh, photograph as the sacred object, which is interesting in a way because this is the only shrine in Japan that holds a photograph as a sacred object. 
but also because our thinking about the silver plate, the ginban as it's called in Japanese, the uh, daguerreotype as a one-off versus uh, our notions of photography as a duplicatable uh, medium, which is uh, another process uh, that was invented by Talbot in Britain. So it's an important point. As mentioned, uh, when Ohikawa became one of the prominent photographers of the 60s and 70s of the 19th century, and other people like Uchida Kuichi and Yokoyama Matsusaburo traveled to Nagasaki to learn the new profession and make it into a flourishing medium for image making. Now, talking about the history of staged photography, the process of making images consciously in the studio by creating scenes or mise-en-scenes that are fitting certain desires or imagery of Japan, that will take us to the commercial business of, of photography making in Yokohama during the 60s, 70s, even into the 80s. Uh, several prominent European photographers like Felix Beato, the British, who was uh, French by origin, but then served in the British Army, he was uh, in the Middle East, and then in India. He photographed the first images of the Tianjin Castle after the invasion of Lord Elgin to China in the Second Opium War. And then he arrived in Japan in 1863, and Beato opened a studio where he photographed what was supposed to be best sold in Europe, scenes of geishas and samurai and sumo wrestlers and other features. And this collection of images was collected later in albums. The pictures themselves were painted by a group of painters employed by Beato himself and sold for nice profit in Europe. And then um, another uh, photographer, um, Austrian by origin, his name was Raimund von Stilfried Ratenitz, and he arrived in Japan in the late 60s, joining in a way um, the project of uh, Biato, starting to make his own interpretation of classic Japan. One can understand that their inspiration was more the ukiyo-e, or the, the life in Yoshiwara, rather than the real life that happened around them that was about modernity and the change and big conversion of Japan from Asian enclosed country into a country which is now open and full of desire to learn and study and receive more and more knowledge from the West. So von Stilfreude continued in the same practice and he produced his own very interesting designs of state photographies of geishas and samurai and uh, nudity, which obviously was forbidden in Europe at the time, was considered to be obscene, something not to be thought of, of decent women to be taken nude. And so Stilfried uh, continued more or less in the same ideas and practices that Beato did. However, Beato decided to leave Japan at some point in the mid-70s, and he sold his collection of negatives to Stilfried, who later on sold his collection of negatives when he left Japan to his assistant, Kusakabe Kimbei, a Japanese photographer who worked with the two. And so, uh, in the end, we have a sort of uh, unclear distinction between the images taken by Beato, Stilfried, or Kusakabe, because they were all mixed in one collection. Mm-hmm. 
And I understand you've also been looking into some photographers who were going into Hokkaido and documenting the colonization of Hokkaido. So could you talk about what role does photography play in Japanese colonial development, whether it's in Hokkaido or even elsewhere, Korea or other parts of the empire? As we know, uh, immediately after the establishing of the Japanese independent state or the monarchy of Meiji in 1868, one of the very early projects was the taking over of Ezo, of the island to the north. It was a known territory that was um, already explored and reported to the shogunate early on in the 1830s and 40s. But now it was a different situation where the Japanese government decided to take over Hokkaido, related to it as a blank slate, as a territory where Japan as a modern state could build its own projects and its own processes of modernity. Much of the process was related to what happened in the American Far West or the American Wild West, inspired by uh, several Japanese intellectuals and government officers who traveled to America in their attempt to learn more about governmental institutions and processes. And when they took over Hokkaido, their model was the American practice in the west of America, and they wanted to do the same in Hokkaido. So the initial projects included the building of Sapporo, which became the major city of Hokkaido, building roads, railroads, mining, factories, and agriculture and dairy farms, etc. One of the main officers in this project was a person called Higashi Kuze Michitome, who was appointed to look after the visual aspects of the project. He visited America a couple of decades before, and he thought that photography was an important means of documenting the development of Hokkaido. And he first approached Tamoto Kenzo in 1871, asking him to document the process of the building of Hokkaido through the Development Bureau. And so the first mission for Tamoto was to document the building of Sapporo in 1871. And then Tomoto uh, went on to take many pictures. He actually documented 158 pictures of Sapporo and the road leading to it. And those pictures were later on on display on the Kaitaku Achievement Exhibition in Tokyo by the end of 1871. A second contract by the same Higashi Kuze was, was signed with uh, Baron Raimund von Stilfried, that we mentioned before in 1872, and he was asked to document the building of Hokkaido's main road between Hakodate and Sapporo, and to build, to uh, document the building of the headquarters of Sapporo um, for the Kaitakushi, and also to document Ainu villages and different aspects of civil engineering, building bridges, dams, etc., along the road between Hakodate and Sapporo. Now, 
Stilfred, as I mentioned before, was already a very experienced photographer with a studio in Yokohama where he practiced stage photography, the performative aspect of photography, where he produced photographs that, in his mind and his viewers' mind, I believe, represented what Japan as an exotic destination was supposed to signify and symbolize. Now, when he was asked to do the documentary project in Hokkaido, he decided to actually do a double project. So he took with him a big, large uh, format camera and a small-scale darkroom, which he and his uh, crew could uh, handle. And he actually decided to produce two different series. One would be the assignment he received from the government, but the second project was taking pictures of the Ainu, much in the spirit and the style that he did with his stage photography back in Yokohama in his studio. Namely, he dressed up the Ainu and positioned them in front of their houses and uh, setting them sitting in circles or dancing, displaying their best garments. Later on, after the pictures were developed, they were encircled in a nice shape um, of an ornament, were tinted with reds and blues to become more attractive, and were sent together with other Japanese images to be sold in Europe. Now, this brings a very interesting question because um, as we know, the Japanese were trying to make a distance and to portray themselves as modern and a group of people associated with Europe, with Western practices, with modernity, with development, with industrialization, etc., etc. And the Japanese looked down upon the Ainu as primitive, as native, as people who are backwards, are not able. But through Stilfried's process and through his two series, one can say that there was a sort of an equation between the Japanese and the Ainu in the eyes of the European by means of making two groups exotic, distant, and not really making any differentiation between the two um, ethnic uh, groups or the qualities the Japanese government or the institutions try to elaborate on. So it's an interesting point to realize that there was a huge gap between Japanese understanding of Japan's position in Asia, and in this case, the colonial takeover of Hokkaido, and how uh, this process was to be viewed uh, by the Europeans. I would like to add to the description one more photographer that was active in Hokkaido from Nagano and arrived in Sapporo at around 1895. And that was already a time when Sapporo was becoming a vibrant city with um, the center of Japanese government of Hokkaido um, making many jobs and offering a lot of opportunities to people migrating to Hokkaido from mainland Japan. So Shiino Tsukemasa opened a commercial studio and um, his photographs could could be said represent the last phase of the modernization process and its effects on the people and the landscape and the different projects around.
One could say that China's photographs document the process of modernity in three main practices. First, it's in civil engineering and um, industry and agriculture. All three practices were imported from the West and implemented in Hokkaido as part of Japan's takeover of the land. And um, while Japan imagined Hokkaido to be an empty a blank slate. Um, there was actually a whole different process going on in the place, and um, the uh, in annihilation annihilation of the Ainu was part of it in the making of this empty slate. So actually, there's no evidence of Ainu villages at all in Sheena's photographs. Instead, he documented second-generation American missionaries who came to Hokkaido to educate the displaced Ainu children after the homes and villages were destroyed and they were um, dwelling in temporary places within Sapporo or its um, suburbs and surroundings. So, influenced by the development process of the American West, the Kaitaku government wanted to create projects that will put industry and agriculture at the top of priorities. And those will mark the modernity of Japan by being able to make uh, the area um, quite vibrant with modern projects. So Shiina's photography documented the grand project of the civil engineering, such as dams, bridges, roads and railroads, and the projects of industrialization, such as mines, factories, and electricity plants. And uh, agriculture, however, played the special role in his work, and he was employed by the Sapporo Agricultural College, the Sapporo no Gakko, and which became later the University of Hokkaido in 1908. And there he photographed husbandry farms with horses, cows, pigs, or he went uh, to look for fruit orchards, um, growing of grapevines, fields of wheat and barley, all coming from Western agronomy and uh, implemented in Hokkaido as a sign of Japan's modernity and uh, instructed by the American advisors who were spread out along the island in guiding the um, implementation of agriculture around the place. So um, one very important point uh, considering agriculture and the intensive agriculture that was now introduced was um, the contradiction and the contrast that was established against the Ainu practices who were conceived as hunter-gatherers and um, never had really intensive agriculture or growing any crops. So that was definitely, from a Japanese point of view, a point of modernity. One contemporary project, a series of photographs taken by photographer Tsuyoguchi Keiji, born in 1950, who created a series of images called Natural History Project. 
where he went back to Hokkaido and photographed all these places that appear in Shina's and um, Stilfried's photographs of the big uh, civil engineering projects of dams, roads, mines, and bridges around the place that were eventually deserted, especially in the late 60s and the 70s when Japan stopped using coal and switched to other sorts of energy. And so a lot of the mines and roads and dams were deserted and in a gradual process, nature took over again and all these places are now covered with plants, vegetation, and what we see from these grand efforts of engineering is just the traces of derelict or demolished uh, houses and bridges and um, stone structures that were lost to the jungle again that took over. So I find Tsuriguchi's um, project, a contemporary photography project, a kind of uh, ending of the circle in a way that um, we look back at the big aspirations and decisions taken in the 19th century to find out that all was lost in the end, only a hundred years after the project took place. You recently published this article, Photography and, and Invisibility, looking at the photography of war memory. And this article even discusses photographs of the famous Japanese straggler Onoda Hiro, who comes out of the jungles of the Philippines in 1974. So could you tell us more about this work on war memory and photography? So uh, my interest in uh, war memory in Japanese photography rose through several projects I encountered in the early 2000, um, when I realized that despite the fact that war memory in Japan was a repressed um, object, one could say, it still came back. You know, the return of the repressed was something that I saw coming to life uh, on every exhibition level that I went to. And uh, so I started to ask myself why 70 or 60 or even 50 years after the war, young generation or more precisely third generation in Japan, people born in the 70s, became so interested in what the war meant to their grandparents' generation and how they deal with that in their own uh, photographic uh, work. And so um, I gathered um, a group of uh, several uh, photographers and started to look into their work more closely. One of them was Tsukada Momoru. Um, he's a Japanese photographer born in 1962, currently residing in Berlin. And uh, he produced this uh, series called uh, Twin Brothers. And in the series, which consists of four images, you see... Um, Two guys, very identical, uh, identically looking. Uh, one is dressed in uh, imperial uniform, imperial military uniform, um, while the other is dressed in jeans and t-shirt. 
And then in the second picture, you see them both in uniform. The third picture, you see them in um, both in jeans and T-shirt. And it seems a bit odd because it turns out that you don't really know who is who and who is wearing what. And when I spoke to Tsukada, he mentioned that in each picture, they changed the clothes with each other. And so that he wanted to produce this idea that we can't differentiate between militarism and civility and that they are intermingled and that they both exist in the same person. That was a kind of a dream he had, like meeting his own image dressed in a military uniform or probably even asking himself what would have happened if I was drafted into the military? How would I react? Will I be a pacifist like Japan is today or will I join the military force with enthusiasm and become um, a very devoted soldier? So all these questions bothered him as he was uh, creating the picture. And but I was more interested in the question of um, sort of uh, the reality of the picture, the fact that what we see is not exactly what um, the reality of these people there is, because um, they are directed by the photographers to act in this or that way, and they display a mixed sense of reality because they are dressed up in a certain way. They're um, reenacting an idea of the war or the memory of the war. And I wanted to compare that to a series that I could fairly well um, get the idea that that was a documentary photography. And specifically, it was a series of photographs of Onoda Hiro, as you mentioned. But these uh, photographs were taken by a Japanese youngster called Suzuki Norio. And the story is that when Onoda was in the forest, in the jungle in uh, on Lubang Island, he uh, wouldn't get in touch with all those delegations sent to look for him, to try and get in touch, to contact, etc. But uh, Suzuki realized that if he will stay in the jungle, not just calling to come out, but if he himself would stay in, then another will reveal himself. So this is exactly what happened. And when he revealed himself, Suzuki asked him, um, why don't you come out of the jungle? And Onoda's answer was that he never got an order to uh, surrender and come out of the jungle. So Suzuki said, how can we do it? And he said, well, get my one of my officers to give me a command, an order. So Suzuki said, well, I need a photograph of you to prove that I really met you and that they will not say that, you know, I'm just telling stories. And he took um, a selfie, you know, a self-shot photograph with a timer of uh, the two of them together and another two of Onoda himself. He went back to Japan. He found Taniguchi, who was the officer for Onoda, and they flew back to Lubang. And 10 days later, there was a surrender ceremony for Onoda that allowed him to come out of the jungle. So the play, the, the role of that photograph that was a proof, an evidence that Onoda was alive, that he allowed Suzuki to go and look for, um, uh, Taniguchi and bring him back. That was something 
that was actually the opposite of uh, Tsukada's idea. What was really striking me in the process is that the picture of Suzuki and Onoda together, Suzuki dressed in t-shirt and jeans, and Onoda in his old, 30 years old, military uniform, versus the series created by Tsukada with the two twin brothers um, in jeans, t-shirts, and the other one in military uniform. They were nearly identical in their setup, but, but they they transformed, they um, told a very different story on how photography functions in the visual field. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.